What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. Hello and welcome. We're uh, back in the studios at Main FM, and uh, I'm Steve Praposh, editor of uh, TroubleMag.com. And I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're in deep trouble. We've got Tim Costello this week. I'm really looking forward to getting into this interview, so let's go. Reverend Tim Costello AO is recognised as one of Australia's leading voices on social justice, leadership and ethics. He has spearheaded public debates on gambling, urban poverty, homelessness, reconciliation and substance abuse. For 13 years until October 2016, Tim was Chief Executive of World Vision Australia, placing the challenges of global poverty on the national agenda. In his current role as Chief Advocate, Tim continues to use his public profile to effect change. Reverend Tim Costello, I'm Dr Mark Halloran, and this is Deep Trouble. I wanted to start off by talking about that you grew up in Blackburn and to talk about your memories of your parents. I know that your mother was a psychologist and I'd read previously that she, as a working mother, that was unusual for Mm. that time and that she was really important to your value system. Mm. I was wondering what your recollections of your father were. Dad was sort of, you'd say, different side of the tracks from mum, so working class, labour voting, Ascot Vale, his family loved the footy, the races, the, the punting, the betting. Dad, uh, different to mum in the sense that he was sort of a loving authoritarian. He, he was a strong disciplinarian, became a teacher, but he always knew he was unconditionally loving, very non-ambitious, non-climb-the-ladder sort of guy. You know, he was offered promotions often in school that might have seen him become a deputy principal or principal. He loved the classroom. He loved teaching and who was supportive, uh, who was stimulating. He had a good mind. He was a very good teacher. So, um, And died last year or two years ago now at the age of 97. The uh, morals and ethics that you had uh, are an expression of your family values, a, a Baptist family. Yeah, Dad actually was baptised Catholic, but um, wanted to play cricket for uh, for this cricket team, which was Ascot Vale Presbyterian. And Mum came from a Presbyterian background. When they settled in the orchards and built their first home, carving it out of the orchards of Blackburn without a car, didn't get a car till I was ten. Uh, the only church really in walking distance was the Baptist church, so we all ended up Baptist. A uh, practical consideration. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the fact we're Baptist is a testament to sport and to not having a motor car. <laughs> right. That's, that's how it sort of worked. But those values, not very different to a lot of people, whether they were church going or not, were um, hard work, save, a sense that we're blessed. Dad had come out of depression, economic depression and war, and always gave away 10% of his income to charity, even though he's only on a teacher's salary. That sense that he's blessed, that he was rich by his own standards, where you know his family had been, 
that he could uh, give back. That was that was a key value that I learned from him. I get the sense that both you and your brother inherited your mother's ambition. I think that's true. I think um, both Peter and I certainly uh, had uh, a drive and an ambition and a sense of let's see where the gifts, skills, abilities we've been blessed with can take us. I think that's true. And I think that probably owes a lot to mum. You and your brother have taken different paths. So your brother is uh, one of the longest-serving treasurers and most successful treasurers. Yep. Uh, I read a story about how you were offered a position of federal parliament and you refused to in case it meant that you'd be in direct opposition to your brother on certain yeah. issues. It seemed to me that there was a strong sense of family loyalty. Uh, it would have been the first time you'd had brothers in the same parliament, in different parties in Australian political history. And party politics is partisan. It puts pressures on relationships and families. That was certainly a factor that I thought about at the time. What is your relationship like with Peter? It's fine. We get on well. Um, we've both got our own busy lives, but yeah. And look, at the time, my wife uh, was perhaps more persuasive. I just finished being mayor of St Kilda. We'd been sacked by Jeff Kennett, and he, I mean, he called you the, that leftist cleric. Yeah, he did. Absolutely he did. Yeah, a troublesome priest. <laughs> and that was in relation to gambling, which we will talk about. Uh, yeah, as well as yeah, local, well, local democracy right. and local oh. democracy. That's right. So I, I was initially thinking, yeah, maybe politics is for me. I enjoyed being mayor. My wife said, "Look, going to Canberra, family pressures, young kids. I don't think it's a good idea for us." So. Uh, she was actually very influential in that decision. You're listening to Deep Trouble on 94.9 Main FM. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with the Reverend Tim Costello. I get the sense that she's been very important in terms of your, maybe your obviously personal life, but new career progression as well. We met at school. She uh, was on the same train line at 17, she was 16, so we were dating sort of off and on through our time at Monash Uni. She did education, I did law, and by the time we'd married young, I was 24, she was 23. I read that you said that she has a different personality to you really entirely, and you often see that, I think, in relationships that you you describe yourself as being loud. Uh, yeah, fairly forthright, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and she is yeah, quite she, a deep a, and thoughtful. Indeed, yeah, she's a, a much more private person. She's uh, introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm a bit more impulsive, and opposites often attract, and it can be a complementary strength. Um, so she's not just wife and mother of my kids, but advisor and support and a person whose wisdom I have always relied on. You both obviously share your Baptist faith. Yeah. Uh, you've been a minister. She's been the minister's wife. Yeah, well, she actually uh, did a theology degree too. So um, she never went and got ordained as a minister, but uh, right. no, she, she's got a good mind after her education degree. So, yeah, we shared a lot of those uh, same both beliefs and worldviews together. What would you say the worldview is? The worldview, put simply, is rather than, and I think this is a faith position, whether you're atheist, agnostic or a believer, 
We can choose to say we come from nothing and we die to nothing. And there's certain evidence for that. Or you can choose to say, as I do, I came from something and I die into something. I came from someone and I die into someone. I don't think either can be proved. Either actually are a faith position. I find it much more plausible that there is a God that we came from something and someone and die into something and someone. And what that worldview helps me do is say, it's not all about me. And it's not all about squeezing as much riches or pleasure into this life. Uh, It's actually about serving. It's about God, the public good, about others. That practically is the worldview I think we share. Who is God to you? Well, I think God is being or existence rather than being able to, you know, paint a picture of some benign grandfather Santa Claus sitting up in the clouds. God is being or existence itself. I think that God is consciousness, that when we have mapped the whole brain and every chemical and electrical impulse and synaptic nerves in the brain, we will not be one step closer to mind or consciousness. Not one step. So for me, God is that consciousness. Now, in my faith, I don't know at what point inanimate cells in evolution woke up and became animated, conscious, but that's for me what I understand God. You're listening to the Deep Travel Podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with the Reverend Tim Costello. I think it's interesting because, you know, there is a, a movement that's been going on for a long time and um, uh, which is sort of embodied by the new atheists now in America, the Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris. I guess what the new age is saying is that ethical and moral responsibility can be decided uh, at a secular humanist level. Mm, sure. So... Uh I, I absolutely agree. I don't think you have to be religious to be moral or ethical. And right. I've never ever said that or believed that. I, I think Harris Hitchens and um, Dawkins set up a straw man of religion. I think they're secular fundamentalists. I don't think they even understand religion. What they did was set up uh, the straw man of the uh, most fundamentalistic, legalistic, and then they knocked that straw man down. That's incredibly shallow, and they haven't even taken the first step to really theologically understanding what religion and faith is doing. But on the question you asked, absolutely, yes. you don't have to be religious to be moral or ethical. I've never, never believed that. I suppose if you look at world history and you look across culture, uh, spirituality seems to be an important component of human experience. Every culture has come up with something mm. divine. Totally. Look, we often get these dead-end arguments that, uh, you know, look, that Hitchens runs, that religion causes all the violence and poisons everything. Well, until 1789, the French Revolution, every single society was profoundly religious. 1789 was the first, if you like, secular government. Yes. But that revolution devoured its own children. Uh, secularism post that, whether it's Pol Pot or Lenin and Stalin or uh, Mao, has killed arguably far more than all the religious wars they had the means to kill far more. Violence is endemic to humans. To actually say somehow religion causes all the violence, I think it's a nonsense. It's the straw man I'm talking about. 
perhaps it's more important to say that if you give human beings an ideology, whether that ideology be religion or whether it be secular Marxism, the human beings have the potential for violence through that. Yeah, I don't think it's ideology. I actually think it's human will to power that is a fundamental part of our makeup so that we have this uh, ability for altruism and empathy. We also have this extraordinary self-interest of will to power to actually feel both superior to and over and above and to rule. Sometimes religious ideologies bolster that, sometimes they don't. Sometimes secular ideologies bolster that, sometimes they don't. I think it's innate to humans. I think my point was that human beings have a propensity to take something. I mean, if you take the message from Christianity and Synoptic Gospels, love your enemy as yourself. He who gives up his life uh, for his brother shows the greatest love of all. Mm. There is a message there which is one of love, and yet even that message given to power, to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, led to the Crusades, led to the Inquisition. We know from early history that the first 300 years, the followers of Jesus were pacifist. They wouldn't join the army. They cared for the poor, not just Christian poor, but Greco-Roman poor. We know that Constantine, the emperor, declares Christianity the official religion, and Christianity gets married to power and, in my view, corrupted. And suddenly Christians are soldiers of the Christian Roman Empire killing. Now, how do you go from Jesus who says, love your enemy, to killing? That, you you might call it ideology, but that was actually a marrying of religion to state institutions and power that I think particularly corrupted and compromised what Jesus explicitly taught, which was the very opposite of that. And I suppose Marxism, as you said, there's an instinct there. Yeah, instinct, or a good instinct, instinct, but then it gets corrupted. Yeah. I suppose a lot of your work, you've been the CEO of World Vision, you're now the chief advocate, which is a change in position, which you've said that you've welcomed. Yeah. Giving you more opportunity to meet people on the ground. You've been a chair of Make Poverty History. History. So throughout your career, there is this this championing of of justice Mm. or social justice. Mm. What is your first memory of injustice, your own personal injustice, of iniquity, when when you started to think that this oh, well, is not I, right? I often, uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, say sharing a bedroom with my brother. <laughs> we would have our fights. My father, who was a loving authoritarian, would come in, woken up on a weekend and say, I don't care who started the fight. I don't want to hear the story. I'm punishing you both. That's where I got interested in justice. I reckon Peter started more of them than me. Yes. Maybe he didn't, but... Uh, I think uh, injustice starts very young. It starts with he's got a bigger piece of the pie than me at dinner time, out of which, you know, that he must be more loved than me or that's unfair. I think we, from a very early age, all humans have a, a pretty keen sense of it's not fair. You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with the Reverend Tim Costello. There is a bit of a debate between natural justice and social justice and whether social justice is always just. Look, justice has a number of strands. In the criminal courts, it's retributive justice. You've done the crime, you do the time. We certainly know in economic justice, in some ways, a Fair Income Tax Assessment Act and a fair taxing system is the greatest instrument of social justice. It says the more you have, the more you actually should pay 
to fund the services we need. There's restorative justice, the idea that can, when a wrong has been done, we restore the parties as close as possible to the original situation. And sometimes in criminal acts that involves sitting, the victim and the perpetrator sitting together and the victim being able to just try and get an explanation. Why did you do that to me? It restores my sense of understanding and dignity back to being able to have an answer. You know, there's lots of strands of justice. Often they're competing. Often we know that social justice would say a person who's doing a crime and time under retributive justice was abused as a child and lived in poverty and bullied and harassed and toughened up to survive. But that of itself may not save them from doing time and being punished. There's always tensions in the notion of justice. I mean, I work within corrections and people often uh, talk to me about what they see as injustice and equity in terms of sentencing and things like that. And, and I, I heard a lawyer say that you can never confuse justice with law. Yeah, that's true. Look, I would say that justice in public policy, public policy that's non-discriminatory and fair, is love applied. It's hard to love which you can do on a personal and individual basis in public policy. The application of love in public policy, I'd call justice, where it's impartial and it treats people fairly, not according to gender, race. It has categories that try and understand the sorts of things I just said, the abuse or the poverty. But it's always imperfect because the law is imperfect. At the end of the day, only God knows. <laughs> and imperfect laws and courts can never quite know the truth and how to balance all those factors. It will try and approximate justice, and that's the best you can try and do. But the lure of love to say we should try and love actually helps reform justice, approximate it with better laws and better practice. That's the theory anyway. Well, it seems that the lobbying that occurs from people who work within social justice towards legislation at a state or federal level and and also informing law is about the idea that the law doesn't get it correct. Uh, Maybe even a lot of the time. I mean, a conservative viewpoint, a a right or a far-right conservative viewpoint might be about retributive justice. It's about punishment. This person has done the crime. There's not context taken into account in terms of the person's personal history. Mm. I wondered, can you understand where people come from when they have that point of view? Oh, absolutely. That's why I was a criminal lawyer. I was mainly defending... I always did defend and work and I always was on the side of trying to take the full context and explain and mitigate this. That's where I came from. But equally, society has a right to protect itself and that balancing is really hard. It's very difficult. You're listening to The Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with the Reverend Tim Costello. Do you prefer being Chief Advocate of World Vision? Look, at this stage of my life, absolutely. I enjoyed being CEO, but managing 500 staff and a big budget and heavy management load uh, when management was never my great passion. No, this, this role has freed me up.
World Vision's projects have expanded under your tenure, I think doubled in fact. Yeah, they've, they've significantly increased. I'm not sure what the figure is. And the, the need is still great. We've made some progress, made poverty history and Millennium Development Goals has seen uh, a reduction by nearly half in the uh, number of absolutely poor people in the world. And that's been great. And trade deals in China uh, and its growth of, and India have contributed to that, so it's trade and aid. But uh, right now the global rules, international rules systems under extraordinary stress, 65 million displaced people and conflict in so many places, Yemen, Syria, South Sudan that I've just come back from. And it's very hard to do development to protect children and give them what they need to reach their potential when there's conflict. So our work does need to grow to address that. You've dedicated your life to, to justice and to improving the world. Has it come at a personal cost? Has it been a, like, has it taken oh, yeah. you away from your family? And, yeah, and you've had to t- totally. My family had made lots of sacrifices for me doing this. I'm not home each night, you know, with the kids. And so there's certainly a cost. I would let my family speak for themselves, but I think they absolutely appreciate the fact that I was doing things I believe in for that better world. And my son started his own charity. The other son's a teacher. My daughter works in mental health. So look, there's costs. There's costs emotionally. You see things you wish you'd never seen, from mass graves and tsunamis to civil wars to terrible stick figures with malnourished, distended stomachs. You see terrible things. So um, and you can't simply shut them out of your mind and uh, turn off. But I've tried to live true to, to what I believe. That's an important part of what I wanted to talk about as well, which is my impression is that you've been at the forefront of, of a lot of humanitarian crises. You talked about the Rohingya Muslims, the 600,000 refugees who ended up at Cox Bazaar in Bangladesh, and you described that as one of the worst mm. humanitarian crises mm. you'd ever seen. Mm. Can you describe what you'd seen there? Nearly a million Rohingyas have been forcibly evicted from Myanmar. Many of the women raped heard the stories. Many kids whose parents were killed. Many, most of their villages burned down. And uh, fleeing across in the Bangladesh into uh, utterly congested refugee camp because Bangladesh is one of the most populated countries on earth with nearly 100% humidity and 40 degree heat and black plastic at the shelters. It's just like an oven, no space and terrible conditions. And that made the Jordanian and Syrian and Lebanese refugee camps that I saw, which are really bad, that Syrian war look reasonable compared to what the hell of Cox's Bazaar was. So I described it as like walking through the gates of hell when you go in there. Like Dante's Inferno, abandon all hope. Abandon all hope. No, I haven't seen things like that, but I, I did work with missionaries in Papua New Guinea mm. uh, in 2000 in a, a tiny little island called Manam Island, and I saw intense poverty. You know, this is one of our closest neighbours. We're one of the richest countries in the world, um, mm. and economically, in terms of mining and everything else, the, the resources have been taken advantage of. That's my feeling. I haven't, your experience in terms of the things that you've seen, uh, it's essentially a war zone. It had an effect on me, and there's a thing within psychology called acculturation, which is your inability to 
uh, particularly returning, it was very, very difficult for me to return to Australia and then to see how people go about their life. Like it left me feeling very angry and upset. I still feel upset now sometimes thinking about it. So I wonder how you cope with that. Yeah, look, I have to go at the end of the day, and this is where my faith helps me. I'm not the Messiah. I can do what I can. This is God's world. He, she hasn't given up on it. And stay focused on the little bit I can do. But there's no question that there's guilt when you get on a plane and come back because you know at one level you're the hope for some of those people you've seen. Can you raise the profile on their needs, raise some dollars, help them, and you can leave. They can't. And you live with that contradiction all the time. I only recently become a father and I wasn't then but I think it's the thing of seeing children mm, totally well vision of the child focused agency we exist for children and I say look the only job adults really have to do in the world is to protect children and when we fail at that uh, we should feel disturbed and distressed and the lottery of latitude where some kids by virtue of drawing last ticket are born on a latitude where they are born into poverty We don't choose the stage of life we're thrown up on. And yet here we won first ticket in that lottery and they missed out. Do you think that is the difference in terms of mindset between people who feel the way that you do and people who don't don't realise that you're simply in the position you are through the chance of birth? Yeah, look, I think we tell a whole lot of stories to ourselves that... uh, I'm doing okay because I worked hard and I'm clever and I'm not lazy and if they're poor, they must be lazy or dumb or uh, deserve their lot. I think when you get out and see the lottery of latitude and get perspective, you don't believe those stories anymore. I think that, you know, having seen people starving and the feeling of anxiety and distress it's understandable that people try to tell themselves that story, to try to make meaning out of it in that way. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Look, humans can't cope with too much overload. And I understand that you want to shut down and say, not my problem. I've got enough problems. That's all I can cope with. I get that. Does it make make you angry with other Well, uh, I think I'd put it differently, that what makes us human is the ability to empathise. What distinguishes us from animals is to imagine and empathise. And then out of empathy to say, and can I do something about that? That's what makes us human. That's what you'd ask of other people. Yeah, be fully human. You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with the Reverend Tim Costello. I just wanted to briefly touch on the work to the Australian Council of International Development that was on Manus Island and the piece that you wrote in The Guardian was mm. in relation to that mm. and saying that, well, if, if Cox's Bazaar was hell, the gates of hell, this is purgatory. And I got the sense from that piece that although the conditions weren't the same, it was more difficult. Because, like Noam Chomsky says, you, you said that we're complicit yeah. in this and this is that, our ethical responsibility. No, the difference is that I'm an Australian citizen and this is a, a situation of our making. The conditions are nowhere near as bad as Cox's Bazaar or Syrian refugee camps. Yes. But the sense of hopelessness is great. Uh, I'm just back from South Sudan and northern Uganda, a million South Sudanese have fled ethnic violence into northern Uganda. And so, you know, the camps I've been in there are vast and there's been terrible suffering, but there's hope. On Manus Island, what really struck me was the lack of hope. 
that we've been forgotten, we've just been left to rot because we came one day or one month after an arbitrary date that said... Kevin Rudd's decision to say that this is... No, no one who comes by boat will ever settle in Australia. And we won't let them settle in New Zealand, even though New Zealand is offering to take them. Yes. That, and we conflate. This is the thing that upsets me most, refugees and terrorists. Right. And say we can feel justified doing this because they could be terrorists. Most refugees are refugees. <laughs> and 80, 90% of Manus have been found to be refugees. They're not terrorists. They're refugees. And... That one day, if tyranny or fascism descended on Australia, could be me and my family fleeing as a refugee. That's what empathy does, exactly. The argument that was made was that sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind. Mm. This offshore detention, which is, which is almost deliberately cruel, is a deterrent as a way of stopping further cruelty so through death. We, uh, we know that's not the case. What we know is that the boats are being turned back. Boats are always trying to come. Um, people smuggling is a business. If they're not smuggling people, they're smuggling drugs. They're smuggling other things. It's called business. Right. It's always happening. If that was right, that uh, this law saying you'll be indefinitely held and you'll never come to a, a, another country, a first world country, uh, and that stopped the boats, the boats would have uh, surely all started. They're going anyway all the time, but just to follow the argument, when we said, okay, you can go to America, right. because there's a route. Both sides of politics and the elite know that it's the turn back, it's the ring of steel that actually is effective, not right. saying we have a law that says you can never come to Australia. That, right. that actually hasn't stopped anything. Right. Uh, so in my view, this is studied cruelty, and I think it's morally wrong, I think being done in my name, right. Are seeing the deterioration of people locked up for five years on Manus Island when they were refugees is terribly disturbing. And I met a Rohingya up there on Manus at the very time where we've got an ABC appeal and government appeal to help the Rohingya because we're outraged. We've got Rohingya there, we've locked up. It so, makes no sense. So that there is a hypocrisy there that would probably make you angry is that there's international aid to Rohingya, but then we're detaining Rohingyans and other refugees against international law. Yeah, look, all, all of life is riddled with hypocrisy. I don't get angry because there's hypocrisy in me too. But sometimes when the hypocrisy is uh, too blatant and contradictory and it is not even serving the purpose, in this case, you know, stopping all the boats by locking them up, I think we need to speak out against them. Do you think anger is an important emotion? I think anger at times can be used for good. I think anger is washing across both Australian culture far too strongly at the moment and the Western world. I think we've entered an age of loneliness, anxiety, anger, with social bonds dissolving, with people feeling free on social media to troll and say things they would never say face to face. I'm, I'm worried about excessive expression of anger as in some justifiable cause, particularly when people on social media are largely in echo chambers. They're only hearing the voice of people who share their prejudices and then getting angry. That worries me. Well, I suppose there's a whole thing around virtue signalling. Look, I think we, we are seeing a rapid retribalising going on. I 
applaud Donald Trump in the campaign for picking up the pain of the middle class and the Rust Belt in America. But what did he do with that pain? He said, effectively, I'll tell you why you're in pain. You're in pain because of Mexicans, we're going to build a wall. Because of Muslims, we're going to ban them. Because of blacks, because of Chinese. When you connect people's pain to scapegoats, it's very dangerous in history. And you can be very angry, uh, but you've actually chosen a scapegoat. And I see a lot of that going on. I, I think the Manus Island uh, refugees uh, are that. They're, they're our scapegoats. Just for my own personal clarification, my understanding was, and I don't, I think it was from Gillian Triggs of the Human Rights Commission, was that the, the processing centres in Indonesia, uh, Australia accepts pretty much every refugee by plane, and that we should increase those processing centres to give people the opportunity, but Tony Abbott halved the number of processing centres. Well, a regional processing centre still is the holy grail for us to act collectively together. We haven't achieved that. The truth is that Abbott did decrease the uh, humanitarian intake that people who come irregularly by plane and overstay are not treated in the same way as people coming by boats. Now, I think it's a good thing to discourage people trying to come by boats. But we lose perspective. We just lose perspective in this. And, you know, when I think of a million South Sudanese going into Uganda, and Uganda hasn't closed the border, and it's given them 30 by 30 metres land, and it says you can go to uh, Ugandan schools and health clinics poor as they are, and we're going to melt down with a few boats. Um, I think we've lost perspective. You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with the Reverend Tim Costello. I know that it's been said that Australia is a nation of gamblers. Mm. Why is this important to you? I think the social damage is very clear when you've got 20% of the world's pokies. I also think the political damage is very clear that the power of that industry uh, corrupts politics. When Gillard with Wilkie tried to have a very modest reform, it was with poker machines, you'd lock in your losses, set the limits you want to, you set the limit voluntarily, uh, you choose. That reform was profoundly defeated, uh, ended up putting Peter Slipper in the uh, the chair as the Speaker of the House because of the power of this gambling industry. So whether it's donations to parties, uh, the shaping of policies, I think the gaming industry can best be likened in this country to the power of the NRA, National Rifle Association in America. We look at Americans blind spotting guns and say they're mad. Other nations look at our blind spot, particularly on pokies. So the $23 billion lost, in gambling, about nearly 13 billion comes from pokies. We've got 20% of the world's pokies and the rest of the world go, no wonder Australia has the highest losses per head of any nation in the world, $1,000 per capita per year. Now, I didn't lose that and you probably didn't. These are some of the poorest addicted people. The second nation is Singapore and its losses are $600 per head. So we're not only first, but we're first by 40%. Right. And the corrupting power of that in terms of its impact on politics and its impact in social misery is, I think, why I'm part of the Alliance for Gaming Reform. I suppose there's a couple of things, which was one that the New South Wales gaming industry clubs clubs and pubs and, um, uh, and the casinos came out to play as well. 
they were uh, they launched a campaign against Peter Garrett. Um, put a tremendous amount of pressure on him. Yep. Uh, they were trained by the NRA. So yep. it's interesting you make that connection. Yep. Well, Garrett and I were to debate the clubs at uh, the Rabbitohs Club and the Australian Federal Police pulled us out of the meeting. Couldn't guarantee our security. Said it's too dangerous. That's how feral this group is. You described it as a racket. It's a legalised racket to uh, corrupt our and compromise our processes. The Gillard-Wilkie reform, it seems as though Julia Gillard was dragged along for that because she had to uh, secure an independent. Rob, the uh, independent MP, Robert Oakeshott, in the, the documentary Kaching says that the issue is not a case of lobbying uh, state and federal governments, that the gambling industry isn't lobbying them. It's essentially embedded within them. That's right. No, look, in New South Wales, where 10% of the world's pokies are, clubs, hotels have uh, basically run state politics forever. In my view, it's been rotten since the Rum Rebellion up there, because that's where the, the power and the embedding has been going on forever. Part of the reasons historical, the only two places in the world that had pokies in 1955 were Las Vegas and Sydney, New South Wales. So um, the power of the culture capture the political capture the community capture up there and what they call clubs you know have five six hundred machines they're not clubs they're, they're casinos and everyone's sort of blind to it it's the frog in the boiling water and just turning up the temperature gradually and the shift of course from mechanical pokies where you could only put in a few coins and have a few losses to digital pokies uh, where you can load up seven and a half grand in one go is the shift from a ball and musket rifle under the Second Amendment in America when it was written to semi-automatic weapons. That's the shift that's gone on. Right. Recently, we've had the, um, the decision for the Blackburn Associates case uh, against... Morris uh, Blackburn, yeah, solicitors and Shonaka Guy. Uh, we, we lost that case. Crown and Aristocrat won it. But if you look at all the tobacco cases, they lost all the... First ones are just the beginning of what will continue and where we'll continue. This is the first step in terms of making yeah. public health policy change. Totally. Absolutely. Right. The allegations against Crown? Well, we, we believe they will um, one day be brought to account. Uh, the judge found that we hadn't shown essentially that people playing the pokies when they've been told you get 80 cents in your dollar back is linked particularly to the uh, new misses and the losses disguised as wins. We think with greater evidence and witnesses, uh, if there was another case, we could we could demonstrate that. Right. So this is a test case, essentially. Yeah, that's right. That's right. From what I've learned about uh, the machines, my feeling is that they don't even constitute gambling anymore. Well, we certainly know from Kaching and Neil Lawrence, the late Neil Lawrence's work with brain scans and going off to Cambridge, that dopamine release playing hits the pleasure centre with the force of cocaine or ice. We know there's a profound addictive element here. It's the reason why uh, poker machines are the only thing on the Bible for mental health, the DSM manual, that's an addictive product which isn't a substance. Everything else you smoke, inject, swallow a pill, drink, 
We know they're highly, highly addictive. The machine is built for addiction. That's what we know. So blaming individuals and saying you're pathetic and you didn't have to gamble and you should have left earlier, sure, always personal responsibility, but it's the wrong emphasis. They're built for addiction. So that's a concerted public relations campaign, the personal responsibility one. Yeah, so the industry and um, and uh, state governments love to say, oh, look, uh, 99% of people gamble responsibly. There's a few people, you know, let us down. You could never really regulate that. Well, it's less than 25% of people who play the pokies. And uh, according to the Productivity Commission figures, uh, 50 cents in a dollar going through the pokies machine comes from an addict who, by definition, is addicted and doesn't have free will and their personal responsibility is overridden by addiction. So this argument of the industry and state governments is a bit of nonsense. Well, I think the argument within the documentary is essentially that state and federal governments are the biggest addicts of all because 8 to 10% of revenue comes from the gambling industry. It's just such easy money. You don't... uh, you don't have to make other difficult political decisions. You just let more pokies go into the poorest areas. Yeah. And you call that governing. State licences, state-sponsored gaming, addiction, crime, bankruptcy, kids going hungry, and you call that governing. Well, I guess the um, conservative or the libertarian argument may be that they'd say well, that you're a Baptist who's got a bit of a Puritan streak and that people should be uh, able to gamble to their heart's content until their wallets are empty. Yeah, I I was never approaching this from a moralistic uh, approach. I approached this issue as a lawyer when a woman came to see me up on defrauding her employer of $60,000. She'd had a good marriage. She didn't have addictions in the smoke drink, had a business that she'd lost, got a new employer and stolen to feed her pokies habit. And I just remember thinking as I represented her, how does a person who's been law-abiding end up in jail? She got four years jail. How is that possible? That's what started me looking at these, not a moralistic uh, campaign to get rid of all gambling in Australia at all. The point that you do emphasise, though, that, and the, the point that seems important to you is the transfer of wealth. So that the fact that it's targeted towards that the... Uh, venues, the largest number of venues and the largest number of machines are in the poorest postcodes. And these are the postcodes that then are reflected by uh, family violence, crime, drug and alcohol issues. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's uh, at its simplest. A ruthless, relentless transfer of wealth from the poorest and the poorest postcodes to the pockets of the captains of gaming industry and state governments. And as a justice issue, I just feel that's wrong. So the last time we met, you said that you, your children had said to you, you've been debating a lot of these issues for many years. Are you going to come down the right? Are you going to be on the winning side? Yeah, Dad, uh, have you, have you, <laughs> is there any cause you've backed that's ever won? <laughs> world poverty, world peace, gaming. Um, do, do you need to win? Uh, a winner would be nice. <laughs> but uh, look, ethics and integrity and how you live your life isn't based on the chances of succeeding. It's based on whether the position is right. And, you know, there's a nice Bible verse, preach the word in season and out of season, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. And part of me says that's actually how you live your life. You you live it faithfully 
Living your life faithfully doesn't guarantee success. It'd be nice to come, but actually living it faithfully is the most important thing to do. We've all over there. Great chatting to you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, too, Costello. Okay, so that was the Reverend Tim Costello on 94.9 Main FM in deep trouble. Mark, what did you think of that? I thought it was an interesting interview. I learned uh, quite a lot in relation to refugee policy in Australia. I think we came to a impasse in terms of our discussion in terms of ideology and power, although the more that I've thought about it now, I think that's a really interesting point around the way that power can corrupt an ideology, regardless of whether it's religion or whether it's a political system. And that point he made at the end, live your life faithfully, I think he certainly does. I mean, he's been at the helm of an organisation which has reduced world poverty, and he was a chair on the board of Make Poverty History, so he's been involved in movements which have changed the world, and I don't think many of us feel as though the things that we do can change the world. No, absolutely. Uh, Do you think we're trying to change the world, Mark? Trying to inform the world, at least. Uh, <laughs> well, well, so, speaking of informing the world, who have yes. we got next week? Uh, next week we've got cancer scientist Professor Jennifer Byrne, and she was named by Nature as one of the top ten people in 2017 who mattered because she uncovered a series of actions which were perpetrated by Chinese laboratories uh, where they had conducted fraudulent research. And so this really could lead to a paradigm shift in terms of the way that we assess research in terms of reproducibility. All right, some more deep discussions coming up on Deep Trouble next week. Thanks for being with us. Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle Main. 